I want to read this to you. It, it is a bit beefy, so I ask that you bear with me. Um, but here it is. I've been here for over half a year now, and though I've met quite a number of people, I haven't made the number of friends I've wanted. I can count close friends on one finger and still find myself without plans and weekends and no one can call just to hang out. And she goes on to say, I can't connect with anyone uh, further than acquaintance. The issue also is that groups feel very clicky here. No one seems interested in meeting new people. There's this bubble around people and groups that I'm not invited into. No one is looking to mingle outside of their group. Now what strikes me that these exact words with minor adjustments, which come from a Reddit thread titled, The Challenge of Making Friends in Los Angeles. These have been spoken to me about collective church, about our own spiritual community. And I'm not talking about years ago or some past and long forgotten email. I'm talking about this past week. Maybe some of you have spoken these to me before. Maybe some of you are thinking these things or feeling these things right now. Because let's be honest, isn't the church supposed to be a hub of exciting relationships, significant connections, and a deepening of intimacy? This is what we, what we all want, Christian or not, we want that. And yet we live in a city where native Angelinos on Reddit lick their wounds of the many friendship letdowns. So what's the remedy? Well, for kicks and giggles, I can only assume, hopefully, that I've piqued your interest a little bit about the 182 responses to this woman's heartbreak. So I thought I'd share, if I could, how Los Angeles people, not us, unless you responded to this thread or whatever, Los Angeles people told her how to find an exciting friendship. Are you ready? Are you curious? Are you interested? Yeah. You don't care. Whatever. You don't care. <laughs> now, these are real, and I'm not joking. And I didn't want to write them down because I want you to hear me say it, but these are real copy and pasted. And if you don't believe me, I'll send you the link. These are real. These are people's remedy. I found doing CrossFit helps you socialize. Gross. That's disgusting. <laughs> if I tell you I have a friendship problem and you're going to tell me about CrossFit, don't be my friend ever again. Another person told this hurting person on the Reddit thread, Buy a bicycle, because that's fun, and, and multiple people will be on it with you. Another is, and these are real, smoke weed, it'll help. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Now, I'm not joking. Those were the only solutions I found in 182 responses. You want to know what the majority of responses were? As a lifelong Angelino, LA sucks, and that everybody is so busy in their own world, they don't have time to make new friends. This is the problem people have been having in Los Angeles for probably 100 years. Too many competing agendas here for friendships. People get punished for being too friendly. I know I've been. And then one person said, which I thought was funny, is this the line for friendship? And then the last one I'll read is, been in LA for two years, no friends at work or school. This feels bad. I think my point's been made, but this, man, this breaks my heart. So if LA or Reddit has nothing to offer, what does Jesus offer our relational realities? If we follow Jesus, what does it mean for our own relationships now as a church? 
See, the question is necessary, thus why we wanted to do a short series, but a crucial series for four weeks on these new relational spheres once we become or once we start trusting Jesus. So last week was our relationship or our profile to Christ as a follower. Next week, we, next week will be our profile to our possessions and our time. And the following, our relationship and our profile to the world or our neighbors and the like. But today, as Pastor Lorenzo already alluded to, is the vital paradigm shift of what it means to relate to one another as family. Not only that, hopefully some insights to what it means to even be a family in this non-relational city. Now, if you're immediately checking out and over it, and you've heard this crap before or just frustrated with this church because it has not felt like family, then guess what? You are in a prime spot, perhaps more than others, to be ministered to today and even even to be part of the solution. And for what it's worth, in full confession, today will be extremely, extremely personal and telling. Very telling. So I apologize to visitors. We are dealing with family issues. But it's telling, and here's why. Because theological beast J.I. Packer says it so famously. I've shared this quote so many times. Because if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So, even just to just pause and ask Christians, do you, do you consider this church, the church, as family? If not, what do you consider the church? And this is a great question for everybody, Christian or not, because our considerations influence our actions. So if you say, I consider the church more of a spiritual social zone, then you will expect a highly programmatic church where relationships are our entire goal of friendships. If you consider the church like a worshipful concert, you will attend Sundays and have high expectations of music and blue lights. You get it. But even the Bible has numerous considerations in referring to what we are corporately. The body of Christ, it says, a city on a hill, living stones, a wandering nation. And I was actually told this last week, and I'm not sure if I believe it, but that there are over 90 metaphors used to describe the church in the very Bibles you are holding. So which is it out of the 90? Well, all of them, but one dominates. In fact, I would even go so far to say that it's not even a metaphor or a symbol. We're not an actual physical body. Nobody here is actually a stone, but it's with the dominating idea as family because it's an actual reality. How? Matthew chapter 12. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Again, it's hopefully it's open in front of you. It's only a handful of verses we're going to crack open, but just know this as you look at it. We're kind of coming in like mid-story. It is extremely controversial chapter to like scramble up and understand. Super controversial. More for them than it is for us. But Jesus among scholars here in chapter 12 is considered the fire Christ. He's considered the fire Christ. Why? Because he's lighting crap up. He's getting nuts. He performs arsonry on their Sabbath He's doing it on on, on them asking for proof and signs. He's dealing with the spirit. And at one point, he looks at the legalistic pastors of his day and he calls them vipers. That's the equivalent of somebody coming up to a pastor now and saying, you're a fan of the band Creed. It's insulting. 
with arms wide open. So by the time you get to our verses, everything around him is basically in ashes. He's pissed everyone off, except his own family. And that's about to change. So he's in this house, he's talking, he's teaching, and then look at verse 46. This is so funny. (laughs) While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. How hilarious is this? If you don't think it's that funny, something's wrong. Because Jesus in this very chapter has been exercising tremendous authority with scribes and and the Pharisees and unbelievers alike with blistering and dynamic and dramatic languages of judgment. He's being very authoritative, and now he's doing his thing, and this unnamed messenger, this total rando, comes in and goes, Hey, JC, your mom's here. You're busted. Oh, and you can hear everybody go, Oh, are you kidding me? Hasn't this happened to us as kids? When we like stayed too long at a friend's or something, we did something we weren't supposed to? No, am I the only one? Short story time. You ready for this? Here it comes. This really doesn't have a lot to do with it, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But I'll never forget, this story reminded me, I'll never forget when I was a kid, I was at a friend's and he had a huge super soaker that I really wanted. If you guys don't know what a super soaker is, maybe I went down a rabbit hole. Oh, the blue lights crashed it. But you get an idea. Man, I was Googling this all week. Look at that. That's a super soaker 100 with built-in air pressure and pump action gauge. So I took this giant super soaker, I shoved it into my pants in front of the kid, and I ran home. And it was leaking everywhere. And by that time I run in my house like this, I get one of these. And it's Billy, or whatever the snitch's name was. It's Billy, and he's outside my door. And he goes, my mom's here, and she wants to speak with you. Not my mom, his mom. My mom would have been like, did you get me one? But his mom. His mom to speak with me. I I still remember that to this day because it was so shame-filled. His mother's outside like this. You stole my kid's super soaker 100. (laughs) That's as far as the story goes. It's really good. (laughs) But (laughs) what's Jesus' response to this weird interruption? Notice, look at verse 48. Notice there's no verse 47, if you notice that, because the key translations removed it as it was an exact repeat of verse 48. So verse 48 He replied to the man who told him, (laughs) and he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? How uncomfortable for this random dude, like being called out in biology class in high school, right? Who is this? What is this? Are they my mothers? Are they? Yes, Mr. Christ. I don't, yes, I don't know. Now, if we know nothing or if we know anything about the family dynamics of the ancient world, what Jesus just did with those handful of words was revolutionary and potentially tragic. For Jesus' family personally, we can safely assume that his stepfather has passed away. So he, being the oldest, was responsible for defending their honor and leading them. So to say what he said and to do so publicly was an absolute abomination. What did you just say about your mom? And on top of that, for a culture in which the household, the family unit, was the organizing principle of life and identity, period. I'm a stonesmith, you'll be a stonesmith. You will live here and you will marry him, you will marry her, period. 
All of that making Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12 like lightning. He is the fire Christ. So is he saying the biological family isn't important? Is he dismissing his own mothers and his own brothers? No, actually far from it. Read other aspects of the gospels. You will see that he loves his mom dearly. He's a total mama's boy. He's even up on the cross. He's dying. He says, John, take care of her. So Jesus doesn't lower, pay attention to this. Jesus doesn't lower the idea of family, but he raises ours. Look at verse 49. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, however he did it, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. That's the revolution. That's the shock. That's the fire. This is what can change this church forever. The central idea of family, their central idea of family is still upheld. What Jesus does is he takes his followers to that same level. This is a reformation for our relational spheres, collective church. This is Jesus' answer to the Reddit thread. That his followers, his church is the answer to our supreme sense for belonging. And here's the thing. Christians here, this is true whether we like it or not. This is a given identity. It's inescapable. So any shadow form of, I love Jesus. I'm just not a big fan of his followers. Any shadow form of, I like the groom. I could totally leave the bride. Or even that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. is completely misleading. Why? Because it's not a religion. It's a relationship's. The good, saving, rescuing news of Jesus Christ is not our private property, our private existence, or our own personal spiritual Zelda quest. The words personal savior is not in any of your Bibles, albeit it true. To receive Christ is to not only relate to him anew, but to be related to him and the family anew. So our faith is set up in such a way that it is incomplete without other people. This is the best And for some of us here, the most challenging news we could possibly hear. Notice how the gospel, the good news, is explained in the book of Colossians, another New Testament letter. Colossians chapter 1. Pay close attention to everything we've been talking about as we read this. Verse 1, 12. Giving thanks to the Father, family language, who has qualified you to share in his inheritance, Family language. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Family language. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. None of us were part of this family which levels the playing field. What that means is it demolishes clicks. And that word qualified in Colossians means he brought orphans into the royal family through his death of his only begotten son. I think we all get this maybe cognitively and this is a good idea, but I don't think practically quite yet this has infiltrated or invaded our hearts and thoughts. Because are we getting this? Our adoption, yes, if you're a Christian, you're adopted. Sorry to tell you this way, I guess. You're adopted. But that qualification makes us equal to receive the same inheritance or the same favor, attention, affection, and right standing as Christ, our elder brother. 
say, okay, that's cool, but what does that mean? Anytime we think God, our Father, is lacking in parental care, absent or unengaged, disengaged, like so many of our own fathers, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Because we believe, or to believe any of this, to believe this about God, that he is lacking or lacking in parental care, means he automatically already already did that with Jesus. So when we say that's true of us, we're saying that was true of Jesus. So untrue. It is a perverted lie. So this idea of God, I don't know for you, but it brings pause to our entire universe. That God is a dad. A dad which transcends all of our own fathers. A dad which cherishes you and sings over you, and delights in you. A dad which hangs your art on his fridge. A dad which shows his, your pictures to his coworkers. He's absolutely wild over his children. And all of the crappy fathers that we have had, and deceptions of our own hearts, are no match for the hurricane of love that our Father has for you. Do you know and believe that he is tender, and he is truthful, and he is present, and he is available to you in the same ways that he was for Jesus. See, this personal truth finds its deepest meaning in the communal. Meaning, God is my father because God is our father. But if we could be honest, that same family tenderness or presence or availability has yet to successfully incarnate amongst us. Meaning, our dad is this way, it's yet to be seen if his siblings will be this way. But if we can, let's take that honesty even further. And can we all admit, Christian or not, that community as an idea is no longer natural or easy? What matters most in our life will take challenges. So then, what, was, what must we become aware of in order to actualize this Matthew 12 idea, this idea of family in our midst? What do we got to become aware of? And I'm I just going to confess, this collective church is where this talk will take a much, much more personal turn. And it must, because the way to understand our adoption in Christ, that very bloodline lineage we have, which was established by Jesus globally for all of mankind is to watch and work with it locally, just as Jesus did with those men and women in that room. Local expression. So in the same way that I care about all the Fritzes in this country and in Germany, (laughs) whoever they are, but my unique responsibilities are first and foremost to, to my children and my wife, and as a child, to my siblings and my parents. So when we say church as a family, we are talking about this. This. Everybody with me? So then, what about you? For here and now, what experience and what expectations have you brought into this family? We all have baggage. We all have different upbringings. What have we brought into this church, even from past churches? Well, for many of us, me included, we often think of family mainly in terms of emotional intimacy. We want a church that is more like this is us, right? With like Jack, like the all-time dad. We approach family with romance. We approach family with warmth. Too many of us approach 
thinking family is like-mindedness or full availability or a flood of continual affirmation or 24-7 support. But show me one actual family who grew up with this. And if you did, please adopt me. Please. That's fantasy. That's utopian ideologies with failing realities. Was this anyone? Was this anybody's frame of mind stepping into collective church? Fantasy or utopian ideologies? And I say very gently, I say very gently, but can I ask, does that seem fair? We are broken people. This is a broken church. So then what are realistic standards that we should have? or believe. Well, the church as a family is less this is us and more Royal Tenenbaums or more Umbrella Academy or more Little Miss Sunshine, aka it's dysfunctional. We are a dysfunctional family and that's the complete point. To speak for myself because I don't know your stories, when I think of my own faltering family as I grew up to present day reality. I'm reminded daily of the painful, painful insecurities of my own mother. I'm reminded daily of the promiscuity of my grandmother. I'm reminded daily of the murky challenges with my own sibling, who was my brother, but now identifies non-binary, so I must refer to him as plural, and I do so respectfully, and his hatred, or their hatred, of God and of the church. Or how about my own father's complete and utter rejection of me? But does any amount of that strain or discomfort change the fact that we are a family? No. Does any of it change the fact that I'm committed to each one of them, despite their lack or likes or weirdness or whatever it is? If one of them was hurt, I'd be on a plane tomorrow. Am I best friends with any of them? Good Lord, no. Oh my gosh, no. Do I wish I was? Sure. Yeah. But family supersedes friendships. This family, now collective church, is dysfunctional. We have strain and imperfections and we are broken and we are lacking and we are incomplete and we are struggling and we are far from the best church you will ever go to. Some of you, you might say, we are the worst church you've ever gone to. And as I've been told many times, many times, this church is not easy to connect with. And if you haven't yet experienced what I just said, our dysfunction, and you haven't yet experienced it and you're new here, don't worry, you will. You will. In fact, this is the only thing we promise you. Lorenzo and I work very hard to meet with everybody one-on-one if they have questions about our gathering, our people, our family. And actually, if you remember, if you remember what we've told each and every one of you, there's only one thing we can promise you. You remember what it was? What was it? I'm going to let you down. Guess what? Lorenzo and I are promise keepers. <laughs> We're going to freaking fail you. And you're going to fail one another. So then, on one hand, when I hear this stuff like I did last week, I am so broken of the lacking friendships or the establishments of cliques within our family. Any form of cliques are completely antithetical to the gospel and are junior high garbage and need to be broken now. 
And those who have the powers to do so, you have a responsibility in dismantling them and working towards stronger family units. And then on the other hand, the relational challenges here present a certain beauty. Because any imperfections to drudge through is a discipleship, discipleship, discipleship direction where we're learning what it means to possess this family identity, which at its core is a maturing responsibility of commitment. Now, total caveat, I'm not talking about toxic or abusive churches. Run from those. So again, keep in mind, we are doing this series because we're seeking to cultivate a maturing culture a maturing culture, but where men and women who follow wherever their heart leads or ride the flowing tides of engage or disengage or possess moral and relational rules beyond what they establish for themselves are not mature. They are not free. And I would dare say very gently, it's not even healthy. Those are chains binding us to adolescent spirituality. I like this quote from Brett McCracken's book. He says, The stay and embrace commitment value is countercultural in a world that encourages people to ditch relationships, swipe right, that are too difficult and inconvenient. The family ties of the church, the family ties of the church should buck the prevailing ethos of loosely bound relationships and string attached friendships. Jesus establishes these family ties immediately when he says what he says in verse 50. Look at verse 50 of your Bible, chapter 12. For whoever, I also just take a moment to be unbelievably grateful that it says that. For whoever, it doesn't say for you, brilliant, seminary, rich, whatever it could be. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Notice he does not say father. There is only one father. But also notice he says sister, which is mentioned, which again stands against the Jewish perspective of the day where women had few equal rights. For whoever does the will, we all kind of go, what? What is the will of God? Matthew mentions will a gajillion times, and it's all sorts of different things. Also, to be honest, this sounds like salvation by works. Whoever does these things, well, he's going to be in my family. What? What are we missing? Well, I think the clue is in what the family there is doing. The ones he's talking to. He's literally pointing to people who are just sitting there. And he says, they are my family. They're just sitting there. Wait a minute, is that the point? That they're hearing and receiving and loving Jesus. A love commitment from the Lord inspires our love commitment to others. I'm going to read some scriptures. They're going to sting, but it's going to make a strong point. Because if none of this is ringing yet, I'll allow scriptures to make it ring louder. 1 John 3.16, another famous 3.16 of John. says, by this we know love is leaving when things get hard. No, it doesn't say that. We know love is preference over presence. No. We know love is comfort over covenant. We know love is that he laid down his life sacrifice for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Family language. 
This is going to tick some more people off. But a test, a test, a test of a genuine faith to the witness of the world, to our neighbors, to everybody out there is what? First, or excuse me, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. We don't finish that verse often enough. We're going to know you love Jesus by your love, by how we love one another. But beyond that, a test of genuine faith as for how we treat each other. 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, family language, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, family language, whom he, has, whom he cannot see, uh, whom, excuse me, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from, with, uh, from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So hearing that, I'm going to slow our roll. What if your frustrations with the collective family is more of a misunderstanding of gospel truth than it is with the church? Let's go heavier. What if the things that are making you the most uncomfortable here is exactly why this church should be good for you and your discipleship direction? Family, what if instead of migrating away, we leaned into the squirmish? Brothers and sisters, what if we said, God, use whatever discomforts you need to use in order to make me more and more desperate for you? What if the moment we're considering dipping out on this family is the opportunity to exemplify the power of the gospel and its ability to love and forgive and restore? So allow me to ask a question. Suggest those who are considering leaving or giving up, if I can, for just a moment. If you're going through this inner battle of staying or going, first, if you have been hurt here by any one of us, I will take the blame right now and I apologize. I am, I am so sorry. You are so loved and it is not what we want for our church. And it does not represent the gospel. I will even encourage, come find me. Please, let's talk about it. And if not me, Pastor Lorenzo, and if not Pastor Lorenzo, Pastor Ike, and if not then, then other people who are at this church who are part of this family. We are so sorry. But I'll also allow me to ask, did you choose this family based on the ability to make you friendships? or the ability to make you more like Jesus. C.S. Lewis will help us, as he always does. He says, don't ask, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste? or my personal dislike for a particular doorkeeper. That meaning dislike of a, personal, of a pastor or a greeter or somebody here. To be here, but then yet remove oneself from our unique responsibilities, which make us family, because a family is what a lineage and unique responsibilities. So to remove unique, ourselves from unique responsibilities because of a strain is a form of family emancipation. And it distorts God's plan for this church. It robs one another of your unique gift, which every member has, the Bible says. So it's thievery. The reverse is also true. If I don't show up to give you my gift, then there's something missing from your life as well. So I'll end with this. 
God's plan forward is not merely the character of the individual, but corporate obedience or a corporate identity or family objectives. Our biblical imperatives will come alive once today we stop asking, what should they do? What should they do to fix this? And we start asking, what should we do? Or rather, what must we do? So what must we do? What's the ask? What's the answer? What's the way forward? What's our own Reddit thread? Well, here's the ask. And I want us to think of these things as family values. Family values. And I'd encourage you to write them down and I would encourage you to pray through them heavily. But first, Derek hit it. F, uh-oh, guess what I'm gonna spell? Uh-oh, eat your heart out, alliteration. Eat your heart out. I'm going to call everybody right now a family value of fortitude. What that means is we must not expect to see fruit grow overnight. Who plants an apple seed and comes back the following Sunday expecting to see an orchard? We are asking you to long-term commitment to a family. Every family's long-term. We're asking you to see it through. Our frustrations today take time. It takes time. A, uh-oh, I know we guess what we're spelling. This is ask family-minded questions. I want us to start asking family-minded questions. Changing our language goes a long way. I don't think we believe that enough, but you'll learn that in therapy. We have to start changing our messaging. We have to. It's no longer they, them, it's us. So we must ask, what can we do? What does it look like to help? It's the same wordings that we would place with our own siblings. Let's ask you know, family-minded questions. Family-minded questions, too. And I was talking to this Pastor Lorenzo this week. Go beyond, hey, dude, I heard blankety blanks in the hospital. Let me know if you need anything. Click. If I found out my sister was in the hospital, you know what I'd say? Let me pick up your kids. Can I pick up your kids? Give me the password they have. I'm bringing you dinner. What's your favorite restaurant? That's a good question. What's your favorite? I'll pick up that for you. When we put the responsibility back on them with family-minded questions, when people ask me when I'm going through our time, very sweet, but it, I, can't, I don't know what to do for you to do for me. You know my trash needs to be taken out on Thursday. Do that, because my mind is somewhere else. Family-minded questions. M, oh my gosh. You know what we're spelling? Fame. <laughs> M for Minimum. Family members transcend the minimum. Transcend the minimum. Lorenzo gave me a great example of this this week. Great example. Lorenzo said, if you were going to come over to my house for dinner on Thanksgiving as a guest, and I saw, I don't know, pick on Lauren. I saw Lauren start to pick up the dishes and start cleaning. No, you're a guest. You're a visitor. Stop it. But I see my son isn't picking up dishes. I don't hit my kids. <laughs> that was bad. I don't hit my kids. Holy crap. The point is this. The point is this. We transcend the minimum as a family, don't we? Oh, just pick up this one glass. No, there's an expectation that family will do the dishes that we have unique responsibilities. That's why we need to even transcend that as a church. We don't want our visitors or the unchristian to come in here and feel like they have to do all these types of work. Family is doing it for and that's what's so attractive about us. Transcend the minimum for discipleship groups. Transcend the minimum for neighborhood dinners. Transcend the minimum on Sundays. Transcend the minimum of care and celebration because if we don't, that will keep us at acquaintance level. 
And if we want acquaintance level, then do the minimum, I guess. But God has more for us because family is the prize. Family is the treasure. If we're thinking FOMO because I'm missing out, we don't understand a high enough view of family. Okay, I, influence. If you are hearing all of this and saying, yes, Casey, that sounds dope. I'll take it. Sign me up. What I would say is this. If there's something behind me you're laughing at, no, I don't. Oh, it's spelled wrong. That's Derek's fault. But guess what? I love him like a brother. Even though we're going to ask him to leave the family, I love him. Love you, Derek. This point is making, don't wait around. My point is don't wait around. There's a lot of us who goes, that sounds great. I'll wait for Luke to start doing it. No, we need to start being a part of influencing others by inviting them to park day or getting them, inviting them out for drinks and just making sure our relationships go beyond Sunday. L, love. Now, I know this seems completely silly. It's like, oh, of course, love. But I want to read... Love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the NIV says it better from verse five. Get this when you think of your family. It does not, love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. And here's the love that I really want for us. It keeps no record of wrongs. So when it comes to, yeah, this church is done. Yeah, we have, and we suck and we know it. Help us. We love you. In fact, every time you're mulling over issues with Collective Church, can I invite you to read all of 1 Corinthians 13? Or whatever church or family you're going to be a part of in the future. First, go there. And lastly, why? And this is the best I could do. Sorry. <laughs> I'm asking for a lot of grace. And this is the best I could do. Just chill out. And we'll end with this point. But this is very powerful. This is very powerful. This, this got me pretty hard this week. Why would we put on the whole family or other siblings what must have only been meant to be put on the father? Meaning, I do not want my son, Moses, to look at my 10-year-old daughter and say, why haven't you been working all week? Where's the paycheck? Why aren't you driving the car or driving me to this or that? Putting it on the Father. I'll explain, like I said, with this. Years ago, a minister navigating the confusing roads of same-sex attraction and chose a life of celibacy was asked the question about church as a family and if you felt lonely. Nowen said this, the best of community does, does give one a deep sense of belonging and well-being. And in that sense, community takes away loneliness. But on another level, community all, uh, allows you to experience a deeper Loneliness. Maybe some of you are feeling this now. It is precisely when you are loved a lot that you might realize a second loneliness, which is to not be solved but lived. This second loneliness is an existential loneliness that belongs to the basis of our being. It's where we are unfulfilled because God can only fill us. May we not replace only what God can do with what his children could never do. And it's in those, those spouts of lacking or waiting, we learn that God is greater than community. 
And it's good because that kind of suffering or strain that we might feel here as a family must make us realize that this family or friendships or the church or the community is not nor ever be the final destination. The Father is. The Father is. Amen? Amen. You pray with me?